The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He said this to test him, because he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what good are these for so many? Jesus said, I have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place, so the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining, and also as much fish as they wanted. When they had had their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve wicker baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. Since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. The Gospel of the Lord. We see today in our first reading one of the subtexts that runs through the difficult relation that Jesus had with a number of the authorities in Israel. And that is the history of false messiahs. Those who came before the Lord pretending to be the one that was sent by God. And they based their claim simply on their own self-assertion. And so we hear about Theudas and Judas the Galilean at the time of the census. That was when Jesus was born. So just 33 years earlier, there's the issue of one who agitates the people, who stirs them up with a false claim to be the Messiah, playing on a disordered patriotism, playing on disordered religious hopes, playing on the fact that rather than looking for the Lord to make clear his anointed and his chosen with signs, human strength and the ability to speak well become the criterion. And what we hear is that in these cases, universally what happened was 
these men begin to agitate, they begin to move, and they begin to act violently. They come to a violent end, and their movement comes to nothing. It was revealed to have been founded on nothing but the proud and violent ambition of the human heart. Gamaliel, the great rabbi who is speaking as the voice of reason in our first reading, invokes these examples. And note that he does so in the context of this Jesus as well was put to death. And yet, curiously, his disciples haven't gone anywhere. There is no dispersal following what happened to the leader. Rather, they remain united, they remain strong, and they are growing. There is something different here. His words to the Sanhedrin echo the tenor of St. Peter's preaching. If God is doing something here, nothing that you do to oppose it is going to be successful. And that is the great rabbi's point, the great Pharisee's point. Dial back the jealousy, dial back the hatred, Dial back the desire to solve what you think is a problem and allow it some space and allow it some time. Because if it is not of God, it will destroy itself. It will come to nothing because it is founded on nothing. But then he says, but if it is of God, consider what you do to yourselves by opposing it. And what a remarkably powerful word that is. But note also the patient perspective out of which it is spoken. Discernment requires time. And so step back from the urgent and strong feelings that you have. Step back from how convinced you are that you're right or that you need to do something right now. and take a moment to see how God will work things out. That's good advice that still holds today, where oftentimes in the experience of faith or conversion or something remarkable, we find ourselves in a certain reactive crisis mode. Either there's something wrong and I must confront it dramatically and immediately, or there's something right, and I must run with it as quickly as possible with an unthinking, uncritical enthusiasm. And neither of these attitudes is fair to the Almighty. Because however strong our experiences are, however strong our conviction that we know what's going on may be, the simple fact of the matter is that even, and in fact, especially in that strength, it is generally wise to pause, to let the experience breathe a bit, to let the situation begin to manifest more of itself so that we can act correctly and see rightly what is going on. And so note here the counsel against rash action. 
whether it's because you, you are convinced on religious levels that you're right, whether you're convinced that this is so important I must respond now, because such an attitude tends to be merely reactive. And the Lord wants his people to be rightly responsive, not merely reactive. And to be rightly responsive, one must be obedient. And the essence of obedience is learning how to listen well and to listen deeply. And that requires time. And that requires patience. Otherwise, I simply respond out of a shallow understanding and however forceful I think I am, my response will only ever be a shallow thing. The great example of this is the Virgin Mary in the famous Annunciation story, where note how heaven speaks and Our Lady stops and considers. Heaven continues to speak and Our Lady has a question which she asks because her yes will not come from a lack of understanding. She wants it to come from a full understanding so that the yes and the response may indeed be full. This then now, as we turn to our gospel reading, will be something absolutely vital for us to pay attention to as we move now into chapter 6 of St. John's Gospel. And we have before us in this incident one of the seven great signs that Jesus works in the Gospel of St. John. St. John, as he tells the story, as he presents the life of Jesus to us, does so in terms of seven particular manifestations of the Lord's glory and power. He doesn't recount as many miracles as the other evangelists do. Rather, he wants us to see the point of these signs that are not simply naked assertions of divine power, but these are revelatory actions by which the Lord discloses who he really is and what is going on. And so this one happens by the Sea of Galilee. And we hear that a great crowd is attracted to Jesus because of the signs, the signs he was working among the sick. But note how clearly that said it. They were attracted because of the signs. Not merely self-assertion, not merely political sloganeering, not merely the quoting of certain standard pious expressions. He is doing something for somebody. And the somebody for whom he's doing it are not the mighty, not the powerful, but the sick, the wounded, and the needy. Note the sign. And these actions among the sick the powerful, and the needy. Not seeking to rally them to a cause, but simply bringing the mercy and the restorative goodness of the Lord to them begins to catch the attention of the people who find themselves in their own neediness 
drawn to him. But they too, because they've seen the signs, it doesn't necessarily indicate that they've understood them. But they do know that something is happening and something is being indicated here. But note, in St. John's Gospel, we just said that there are seven signs that happen before that great and final Passover of Jesus' earthly life among us. We're only at the midpoint. And so we ourselves, as we read through, do not have the complete witness of all the signs yet. And so note what the evangelist is doing in the gospel. He's also walking us through these seven steps, these seven ways by which the Lord manifests himself to us so that by the time we reach the seventh, we have an understanding that has been prepared for us that will allow us to more fully embrace the great mysteries by which the Lord saves us. And so now we come to this particular sign, this great sign by the lake, where the Lord looks out at the great crowd that has gathered around him, some 5,000 men, plus those who have come with them, their wives, their children. It's a remarkably large crowd. And so the Lord's instruction to his disciples is remarkably strange. He calls his 12 apostles around him. He indicates the 5,000 plus who are there. And he says, why don't you go do something about lunch for them? Note the ridiculousness of the request. Note how foolish it sounds to any sensible ear. We're 12 guys. That's at a minimum 5,000, probably closer to 10. And you want to feed them. And we're by the shore of the sea where it's just grass. There aren't any stores. There's no restaurants. And Uber Eats doesn't have enough cars to deliver sandwiches. What are we going to do here? And then there's the question of, could we even afford to buy lunch for all these guys? And so note what, Peter, what, what Philip says to Jesus. Lord, he basically says, do you have any idea what you've just asked? An entire year's salary would be enough only to give all these people a taste of something. To feed them would require several years worth of salary. But they're here now. They're here now. And I left my ATM card at home. And so note how we are faced with impossibility, radical and complete impossibility to the extent that what the Lord seems to ask for is foolish. And keep this in mind. Keep in mind the foolishness of this request into next week when we will hear the Lord be accused of an even greater foolishness when he talks about his flesh being true bread.
and his blood being true drink. And so note here, we have an impossibility. There is no quantity of food on hand for so many. There is not sufficient wealth to purchase it, even if there was. This cannot be done. And Andrew, you got to love him. He's out there looking, trying to see where can I scrounge food. And he says, the only thing I've found is a boy who is the only one here smart enough to bring his own lunch. But that's good for him, but not for everyone. And so it's at this point where the Lord says, well, let's, let's, let's not be so quick. Bring that here. And now, be conscious as well of the timing of this. Because the Holy Spirit is very careful to indicate to us through St. John that Passover was drawing near. In St. John's Gospel, there are three Passovers that mark the life of Jesus, not just one. And so note that this is one of those three Passovers. This Passover is marked by what happens before the Lord gets to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He feeds the people and he will give them the teaching about his body and his blood, which on the next Passover he will offer for us on the cross after the night before, having given the sacrament of his body and blood to his church. And so again, note what is happening here. The Lord knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what's going on. He has the schedule. We don't. And so the Lord, everything he's doing in anticipation of his present Passover is also looking toward that other Passover when he will extend his arms on the cross in that great and saving sign for us. But what does the Passover celebrate? The liberation of Israel from Egypt. The moving forth from the flesh pots of Egypt to freedom in the desert where God himself fed his people. Note the context. All of this is going on here. And so the Lord basically says, and I will feed them. And note again how carefully this account of the miracle is worded. The Lord takes the bread, takes the fish, gives thanks, and then we hear not that the disciples distributed it, but that he himself did. Now, again, Perhaps he himself did it by handing it to the apostles and said, take this over there. He directed the distribution or, but note the implication that he personally distributed. And whether that's a matter of him physically walking up to each of those 5,000 people, which would have taken quite a while, or controlling the distribution, that's not the issue. The issue is that this food comes from him. 
And however those loaves and fish find their way into people's hands, it's because he has given it. He has given it. And we hear that they had as much fish as they wanted, as much bread as they wanted. It wasn't rationed. Now again, let's be honest. When you guys plan a party, what do you do? You calculate the number of people. You very carefully go shopping with that quantity in mind, and maybe you buy a little extra. And then you put it out. You're always worried about that one guy wanting a little too much because that's going to knock off the calculation. That's how it works even when we're generous, isn't it? And so note here, there is no calculation of that kind. There's no quick and frantic math saying, I'll need exactly this much bread, exactly this much fish, and that should do. Everybody will get something. What do we hear instead? Everyone had as much as he or she wanted. Note how remarkable this miracle really is. It's not merely the fact that 5,000 were fed. 5,000 had as much as they wanted. And so no one was unsatisfied. No one left hungry. No one said, oh, too bad, that fish was really good. I wish I could have had seconds. Note how remarkable that is. This is the same Lord we heard yesterday who says he does not ration his gift of the Spirit. And what do we see here? Nor does he ration the food in the miraculous feeding. When the Lord feeds us, there is always enough. In fact, there is always more than enough. Note how wonderful that is. And so note the sign here. The sign is not simply that 5,000 people had lunch. The sign here is that he is the one who feeds the people. And when he feeds the people, there is a, an abundance, a miraculous abundance that is more than sufficient, regardless of how great the number is. Small wonder. On seeing a sign like this, they want to make him the king because they're thinking, this is the guy who takes care of the people. On the one hand, they understand that exactly correctly, but they have yet to understand fully what taking care of the people means. And because they do not understand fully, note what the Lord does. He withdraws. Because he wants no earthly crown. He wants no hastily imposed honor. He wants no shallow praise and glorification. He is happy to feed them. He is happy to care for them. But he will not let them define him. Note how marvelous that is, too. The Lord will act on his schedule, in his way, on his time. And as soon as tomorrow, we will hear about the next sign that the Lord works. But we're here today. 
And note how wonderful it is, having reflected on all of these things, that, okay, we're a little less than 5,000, but we're here, and we're seated, and we're outside, literally, by the sea. And what's going to happen while we're here? Jesus is going to say to me, give them something to eat. However, unlike Philip, I know the end of the story. <laughs> and note how wonderful this is. You'll see me coming forward with bread in my hand for you. But he's the one who's doing the feeding, not me. And note that it's bread. And for 2,000 years, the Lord has had his people sit while they listen to him and he prepares something for them to eat. And the bread has never run out. There's always been more than enough. And when we come forward and stretch out our hands to what is to our eyes merely a small morsel, within that tiny fragment of bread is the infinity of his goodness. More than enough for any of us. Note that it doesn't matter how big a host any of us receives. Everyone gets the same. No one gets less. No one gets more. Because it's always more than any of us can fully consume and fully manage. Note how wonderful it is. And after all of that is done, just like 2,000 years ago, the disciples went out and made sure that none of the gift was wasted. They gathered it up in baskets so that they could give it to the poor, the needy, those others elsewhere who might be able to use that food. When you're done receiving communion, I'll purify the vessels at the altar. And the point of that brief ritual moment by which the vessels are attended to is to make sure that none of the sacrifice, none of the gift, is unappreciated or unconsumed. And any that remains is carefully preserved, taken to the tabernacle, for the benefit of those who are not with us right now, but who likewise need to be fed. Note how beautiful this is. This anticipation of what we do here that the Lord already saw as he asked those people to sit and turned to his disciples and said, give them something to eat. And note how he continues to do that through his disciples. Give them something to eat. Sit here and I myself will feed you, says the Lord. Amen.